Welcome back. It's Pastor Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church here in Marana, Arizona. Uh, welcome back as we look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Religionless Christianity. For those of you who just tuned in 30 minutes ago, uh, this will be a repeat of what you just didn't hear because we didn't have the sound going on. So apology for some technical, technical problems. We are a local congregation, not a Hollywood studio. So we do our best, but this gives me a chance, I guess, to give you a cleaner version. So anyways, we are going to continue to look at some of his ideas about a religionless Christianity that he wrote while in prison to his friend Eberhard Betke right at the end of World War II. And again, the two-second background is that he's coming up with these ideas. He's throwing out these ideas as he's getting, realizing, I think, that he's getting towards the end of his life. And he's been thinking about all these concepts. And he's thinking about them in the context of World War II, in the context of Germany and everything that's going on. And he's rethinking a lot of Christian theology. And he's doing it in ways that would, uh, he's starting to ask the big questions that maybe some of us get afraid to ask. So, we're going to see some of these ones that he throws out. Today, we're going to look at redemption. That word that you hear all the time, Christianity, you hear all the time in theology. Uh, and he's going to basically put out an argument that redemption has nothing to do with life after death. Uh, is it true redemption has nothing to do with life after death? This is going to be a little bit of a two-parter. Today, we're going to he's going to deconstruct it. Uh, next week, we'll get into the reconstruction of it, what redemption might look like. Uh, today, it's what it isn't. So, uh, we will, I'll move over, and we'll read through the text. It, we will start at, uh, if you have the book, His Letters from Prison, it's page 336 and 337 is where we're going to begin today. I will read through, and then I'll give you, hopefully, some helpful uh, thoughts and questions on it. So, here we go. I'm at present writing an exposition of the first three commandments. I find number two particularly difficult. The usual interpretation of idolatry as wealth, sensuality, and pride seems to me quite unbiblical. That is a piece of moralizing. Idols are worshiped and idolatry implies that people still worship something. But we don't worship anything now not even idols. In that respect, we're truly nihilistic. Okay, a lot to unpack here. First of all, you know, my first impression was, wow, you must really be bored if you decide to keep your time of day going by writing an exposition of each of the commandments. But I understand where he's coming from. As a Lutheran, he would have had Luther's small catechism and Luther's large catechism. He would have had Martin Luther's interpretation of the commandments. And yet for our time, things are very different. The world of the 1500s is very different than the world of even 1940s Germany. So looking at God's laws and God's commands in a new context, it makes very good sense. Uh, I wish we would have had a chance to read some of those expositions. That would have really been helpful, I think. But, so he's looking at these. Now, the commandments, it depends on how you number the Ten Commandments, but the, the, his, his numbering of them has, uh, 
idolatry and have no other gods before me is in commandment two. And interesting that that's, he's already finding that difficult. Of course, who's a, you know, you get to killing. Who's, a, who, who's gonna say killing is good? Uh, but he gets stuck on that one. He's already stuck. And he said, and he, he immediately says he just can't handle the usual interpretation that he hears from the pulpits that is probably what is in common belief, which is uh, that worshiping idols is wealth, sensuality, and pride. He says that's unbiblical. Uh, I agree with him on this point. If you look through, particularly the Old Testament, where the Ten Commandments come from, wealth, sensuality, and pride may be symptoms of worshiping idols, but it isn't really what worshiping idols is. Worshiping idols uh, is more than just making a statue and going, that thing is God. There are a lot, and there's even a lot of archeologists and professors of religion who, it's still a debate. Did pagans really truly believe that that statue was Baal or that statue was Thor, pick one for my ancestors, or did even they believe that the statue was a representation of Thor? We, you, I don't know. It, I, maybe a time traveler could uh, give you that. But the Old Testament is absolutely chock full of commands not to worship idols. And yet, people keep doing it over and over and over and over and over. And we think the worshiping of idols went all the way to the top that the high priests themselves were putting idols in the Jerusalem temple. The prophet Ezekiel talks about all the abominations, he, he's, he, he's big on abominations, uh, of priests putting idols in the temple. And there's some really good scholarship that believes that the Jewish people most of the time worshiped Yahweh, they worshiped the Lord God, and they worshiped other gods along with it. And it was those pesky prophets and the people writing the laws who were the strict monotheists who said, it's not just enough to worship the Lord God, you must worship the Lord God only. And we look at this and we kind of go, what's the big temptation? What's the big deal about, well, what's the appeal of it, right? As modern people, throwing up a statue and praying to it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. That isn't something that we see as a very tempting thing, right? I don't have to sit and lecture my parishioners about make sure you don't offer your children on an on a altar of hot coals to appease Baal. Never happens. In fact, they don't, I don't even have to tell them to not offer anything to Baal or Thor. Um, although, uh, if I was a pastor in Sweden and Norway, I would definitely tell them don't go back to the Norse gods because the people who are doing that are uh, far right-wing like Nazi skinhead types who see Odin and Thor as being more strong and masculine uh, and Jesus as being kind of a wuss. I will say this much, they understand Jesus better than those who are trying to make Jesus strong and masculine. But we can leave that for another day but just enough to say that idolatry doesn't seem like much of a temptation to us. Well, you got to understand how paganism works. So again, I'll go back to my ancestors, uh, my Viking ancestors, you know, with Odin and Thor, or my Celtic ancestors in Ireland with the bog spirits and stuff. 
How did it work? Well, the way paganism works is it's transactional. It's I give the pagan god something, the pagan god gives me something back. So I give, say, Baal, I give Baal wheat, I give Baal a bull, uh, I give Baal a kid. And in return, Baal goes, oh, thank you for the sacrifice. Because you've given me something, I will give you fertility, I'll give you rain, I'll give you victory in battle. It's transactional. Why is paganism always so attractive in ancient Israel? Because the pagan gods are kind of giving you a way to assure that you'll get results. It's, it's a much more clear thing you can do. What can I do? It's not raining. Well, the Lord God says, you know, they go to the prophet. Okay, prophet Elijah, what does the Lord God say? It hasn't rained. And the prophet says, put your faith in God. Trust some more. They go to the Baal prophet, and the Baal prophet says, oh, you do, just sit in there and wait. Lord God just wants you to sit and wait. You know, forget that. Offer this, 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 and this sacrifice and Baal will reward you. Well, if your kids are hungry and your farm is going bankrupt and your crops are dry and one God is telling you to just trust and the other one is offering you at least the possibility of results by doing something, you can see how appealing that would be. It gives us more sense of agency and control, right? When times are tough, one of the first things you lose is a sense of agency. And what is the one thing you cannot control? The weather, right? So for agrarian people, it's a huge, a huge temptation to want to give things to gods who will give you them back rather than the Lord God who says, change your behavior, change your attitude, and trust me. And so that's why, again, we believe that it was a pretty, pretty common thing. Uh, it was a big temptation. But that's how paganism works, right? It's deeply transactional. So what does the Lord God do on the mountain? Puts it in one of the commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Do not worship any idols. And the modern preacher then sits down, and we'll even say 20s and 30s Germany, which, again, you have to remember, in terms of modernity and secularism, they're several decades ahead of us. Germany became secularized way before the United States did, and, and all of Western Europe for that matter. But So you're a preacher, you're sitting there in your German parish, and you've got these educated people who've been reading science textbooks, who don't really, you know, aren't sure they really, you know, believe they definitely don't believe in idols and transactional god stuff doesn't seem to have much appeal to them but yet you're sitting here trying to teach them and you're trying to teach the kids not to worship idols okay how do you make that relevant how do you make it so you can see them sitting in their minds going okay 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 you know all right we don't worship baal we don't worship thor we don't worship the great tree um what do we what do we do oh i know um wealth we worship wealth Right? We'll do anything to get wealth. And you've seen that phrase, we worship at the altar of wealth. Right? Uh, and sometimes I find myself using that language. You know, you think of some of these suburban families who will pressure their kids in their whole childhood to the absolute working them to the bone 
full of homework all day long every weekday and traveling sports all every weekend and then personal trainers instead of church on Sunday mornings and you know what for to make sure that their kids can stay in the upper class and it does kind of sometimes look to me like you're sacrificing your kids in your kids childhood on the altar of wealth uh, you know, or the guy who never sees his family because he's always traveling, because he's always got to take that promotion to get that extra bit of wealth. I find myself using that language, but it's not quite transactional in the same way. It's still industrial thinking, which is if you put more work in, you get more results. Paganism isn't about a work ethic. It's about giving to the deity to get results. And yes, there may be work involved in getting that grain or that bull, but it's still different. It's, it's, still, it's still not quite the same thing. Sensuality, that's the next one. Do we worship sensuality? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it isn't something that, you know, it may be a vice, it may be a temptation, it may be an obsession with some. Uh, it's certainly something that I think one could overindulge in. It, you know, we can get into that, but sensuality isn't a god or a being. You know, I don't go out and sleep around so that I can get, you know, something in return other than just more pleasure, I guess. Uh, and pride, is pride something we worship or is that just a symptom of not worshiping the Lord God? Is that just a symptom of getting involved in a decadent lifestyle or being too full of yourself. It's hard, again, pride isn't an entity or a being that you do transactions with. And so I think Bonhoeffer is right. There really isn't any evidence in the Old Testament that would say that one could simply convert the prohibition on idols into a warning about overindulgence. And I think that's why the idol command doesn't go very far. It's just, it's hard to translate in our world. And I've even tried to think, what are the things that we think transactionally about to get ahead? Um, and I just, I don't know. I, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to, I don't get lots of good analogies, you know. Um, so I do think, and I do think it is unbiblical. Uh, it is, it, that's not how uh, idolatry is understood. So uh, anyways, Bonhoeffer's writing this down. He's struggling with it. And he's admitting, like, look, we don't even worship anything. We don't worship anything. You know, we use that language, like, ooh, there's a rock star, right? Oh, everybody worships this rock star. Uh, and the rock star gets out there, and he or she sings, and everybody screams, and they get on their knees. You know, and the rock star says... Uh, give me an A, and then everybody obeys and gives them an A. But, I mean, honestly, people don't go to Taylor Swift concerts because they think that Taylor Swift is going to somehow give them something other than good music. It's still not transactional. Maybe looking up to someone, it may be giving them a lot of your time and energy. Uh, you know, it may be even fashioning your life after them. But that still isn't, that isn't idolatry. That isn't worship in that way. And so Bonhoeffer's right, you know, do, do we really even worship anything? And there is a, I, I think he's, he's putting things into context and he's asking that context. And we have to remember that with pretty much any law or any command in the Bible, that it's okay for God to give a command that has a context.
To say do not worship idols in the context of an agrarian people surrounded by pagans makes very good sense. I'm not sure our context is the same way. You know, there's biblical commands about what you can and can't do with camels. You know, it's, it's not a bad command. It just doesn't fit our context, right? So it doesn't mean it's voided. It just means that maybe it's not a command that particularly is something that we should worry about. So, uh, and then, of course, he goes on uh, with saying that, you know, in this respect, we are nihilistic. Well, you know, he's a theologian and a philosopher and, you know, reading Nietzsche and these guys. Uh, I don't think most of us today are nihilistic in the sense that we're against morality. I think we all like to think we have some morality, but just that, at least in America, we make it ourselves, right? As, as long as you're consenting and you ain't hurting anyone else, eh, you know, to each his own. Uh, maybe that's a little bit nihilistic. It's probably a lot more relativistic because even they would tend to say, well, to each his own implies that there is a rule which is, which is that uh, you can't mess with my morality or what I do shouldn't affect you. And in a society that doesn't always work, you can debate that ethically. So anyways, this is how he's going. This is how his thoughts are starting. All right, there's no, art, there's no idolatry, there's no thing. What do we do? What do we do? All right, let's get to the next one. He keeps going. And he kind of jumps a little bit. We'll read this through. Now, for some further thoughts about the Old Testament. Unlike the other Oriental religions, the faith of the Old Testament isn't a religion of redemption. It's true that Christianity has always been regarded as a religion of redemption, but isn't this a cardinal error which separates Christ from the Old Testament and interprets him on the lines of the myths about redemption? To the objection that a crucial importance is given in the Old Testament to redemption, from Egypt and later Babylon, uh, such as in Deutero-Isaiah, it may be answered that the redemption referred to here are historical, i.e. on this side of death, whereas everywhere else the myths about redemption are concerned to overcome the barrier of death. Israel is delivered out of Egypt so that it may live before God as God's people on earth. The redemption myths try unhistorically to find an eternity after death. Sheol and Hades have no metaphysical constructions but images which imply that the past, while it still exists, has only a shadowy existence in the present. All right. This is where another one of those passages where you can see that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would get run out of town by many of the modern people who claim him as one of their own. So we're going to talk about redemption. Let me give you a little bit of background here on that word. You know, we throw it out like a lot of words. We, I think we think we know what it means. But in the biblical context, it has a very different meaning from often how we think of it today. In the biblical context, even starting in the Old Testament, but particularly in Greek and Roman times, redemption has to do with slavery and getting people out of slavery. So the way you redeem someone is you have to offer something to the slave owner or the kidnapper, the hostage taker. You have to give them something in return for them giving up their slave. 
And there has to be a trade. And that trade is usually, it's either money, you know, you buy them out, or you get another slave, or another two slaves, however you decide to negotiate this. And so redemption is not somebody being let go, it's somebody accepting a payment for someone else. And if you think of it in that terms, you know, it, it does start to make you go, oh, is this how we want to really talk about God and us uh, in slavery language? Uh, do we not want to maybe get free of that? But why is it that the slave owner doesn't just free the slave? Uh, because there's money involved and there's work involved. If I let my slave go, who's going to do the work? Not me. I ain't doing the work, right? So if I, if, if I lose that labor, I want something in return. Uh, but if you think about it, what the slave owner is getting in return is always something in this life. There's never a dead person involved. There's never a sacrifice involved. The slave owner wants a living slave for their living slave because they want the benefit of the labor. Nobody ever dies to, pay, to make the payment for the, the slave. That's not how redemption works. That's taking sort of the sacrifice idea, you know, of a punishment. You know, my punishment is I'm going to give something up, like paying a fine, right? Uh, David got caught committing adultery and, and murdering the guy's wife uh, or the wife's husband. So he goes and kills a whole bunch of bulls and then realizes it doesn't work. But he's essentially paying a fine. Old Testament sacrifice is really best understood like paying a fine or paying a fee. It's a punishment you do. It's the, but it isn't something that necessarily releases you uh, in that same way. And, but it's, a it's an attempt at taking that kind of language about slavery and applying it to the faith. And Bonhoeffer's reading through, and he's reading through his Old Testament, and he's going, you know, all this redemption language that we've used with Jesus isn't really in the Old Testament. Are we imposing on Jesus and his death uh, a framework that Jesus himself uh, doesn't even do? Uh, are we imposing on him a way of thinking that is alien to him? Uh, and so he goes on as he embraces this uh, radical idea. It's true that Christianity has been regarded as a religion of redemption. So he's right. There's a long, deep history of this. But it's an error which separates Christ from the Old Testament. I want to stop on that line because there's a lot in there. Nazi Germany that Bonhoeffer's writing in absolutely severs Christ from the Old Testament. How else can you justify trying to exterminate God's chosen people and still call yourself a worshiper of God? Well, there's lots of ways, but one of the ways, one of the theological constructs that was used to justify it was a, a doctrine called supersessionism which basically implies, as the word would say, that Christianity supersedes Judaism. Almost like Christianity is a break. Instead of being a progression, instead of building upon, instead of being a continuation of, it's like a break and it's better. And it's a little bit like saying that instead of continuing to build on the house that we have, 
the old house is over there. We built a new one. We're going to, it's time to knock the old one down. And supersessionism implies that. And there's a darker side that tends to see the Old Testament as the Old Testament was law. The Old Testament was wrath. It's punishment. There's no grace in the Old Testament. And it has a very, very prejudicial negative view of the Hebrew scriptures. And supersessionism looks at things that way and then goes to Jesus and wants to act as if Jesus was not an Old Testament Jew versed in reading the Old Testament and quoting the Old Testament. It wants to make a break and that break justify is a justification for atrocities. So supersessionism is a very dangerous idea in its implications. And, and Bonhoeffer is living this, right? He's seeing this firsthand, he's living through it, and he is going right to the, the heart of, of the doctrine, the doctrine that justifies it, which is redemption. And he says redemption, this idea of redemption is one of those beliefs that is used for supersessionists. So, do a little thought experiment. I, I always like my thought experiments, right? Imagine reading about Jesus and all you read was the Old Testament and then you read the Gospels and you read Acts and you stopped. Just run the experiment. You read through it and you stopped. You didn't have, imagine if you didn't have Paul to talk about atoning for wrath and you didn't have the book of Hebrews to talk about Jesus as the perfect sacrifice that means we no longer have to make animal sacrifices. And imagine you took away, uh, you know, those little books, Titus and Timothy and Jude, that talk, that talk most clearly about language of hellfire. And imagine all you had was the Old Testament and the Gospels, and you read through that and you stopped you would see Jesus very differently, I believe. And you would understand Jesus very differently than you do if you're looking at him through the lenses of the later New Testament and Christian theology that came after him. And this is something that, you know, as Christians, we kind of take for granted the whole classical atonement theory that, you know, because of the fall, when they ate that apple, sin entered the world, and now God is wrathful and angry and is going to send everybody to eternal hellfire in a physical place called hell because of sin. And the only way is this wrath has to be appeased because somebody has to get punished. And so instead of either wiping out all of humanity, Jesus steps in and says, Daddy, I'll take the wrath, punish me. That's how redemption is understood. He took the punishment so I don't have to be punished. That isn't in the Old Testament. Why? First of all, the Old Testament has no life after death. And this isn't me trying to be heretical. This is, you just go read the book yourself. There's no life after death in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, all you have is a place called Sheol. And he does reference that down at the bottom. Sheol, he talks about it. 
And throughout the Old Testament, Sheol is just a dusty place where you go. Good or bad, everyone goes to Sheol, and you don't get out. And it says in many of the Psalms, one cannot come back from Sheol, one does not rise from Sheol. The predominant belief of Judaism for thousands of years was that when one dies, one just goes to Sheol and sleeps, and that's the end of the story. That was the religion Jesus grew up on. Now, there was a debate in Judaism at the time of whether at one point people in Sheol will be brought back up and raised again or whether they stay there forever. And you see this in the Gospels, the split between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are two religious schools of thought. The Sadducees were clear, there is no resurrection, it doesn't say so in the scriptures, period, end of story. And then you have the Pharisees, which is the school of thought Jesus would have grown up in, and he seemed to resonate which, with more, which taught that yes, when we die, we go to Sheol and we sleep, but eventually we will be raised again. And Jesus did believe in a resurrection. So we, we are raised. Even the Apostle Paul, the one who introduces this idea of atoning for wrath, uh, he doesn't go on a long, he doesn't go on it a long time, but he does introduce it. But even Paul, if you read Paul carefully, Paul is very clear. Today we sleep, tomorrow we rise. Paul was a good Jew too. He didn't believe that when we die, a disembodied soul goes to one metaphysical place called heaven or one metaphysical place called hell. Paul believed when you die, you sleep. If you're a believer, you get raised. If you're not, you stay asleep. Period, end of story, we're done. That's different, isn't it? And nowhere in that really is wrath. Maybe if you're Paul, you'd believe that those who believe in Jesus, you know, that that, in a sense, saves you from death. It doesn't say Savior from hellfire, it says saves you from death. There is a difference, and you've got to read that carefully. Uh, so, the, it is not Old Testament that there is a heaven and a hell. So you have to think, and when you think about that, it really is kind of eye-opening that three-quarters of our Bible doesn't get into something that, you know, most of Christianity for over a thousand years has taken to be the most foundational thing around. And it even raises the question, and I would challenge you, go back to the Gospels and read them again, and you will find Jesus never uses the phrase, I came to redeem them from hell. I came so that I could appease the Father's wrath. He doesn't use those langu that language. There is one time where he says, the Son of Man came to be a ransom for many. And then he ends it there, and that's it. And so that one, that one verse becomes the, ha-ha, I got the smoking gun. But Jesus just says a ransom for many. <coughs> and again, is that a ransom in this life or in the next? In the Old Testament, it's this life. So, in the Old Testament, there is talk about people being punished for their sins. Absolutely. If you look at the prophets, take, uh, take Isaiah, for example, the book of Isaiah. Uh, Jeremiah is the same way. Right around the time when the Babylonians were attacking Jerusalem, the prophets were clear. If you do not stop worshiping these idols, if you don't get the idols out of the temple, if you don't stop abusing the poor, God is full of wrath because you worship idols and abuse the poor. 
And so you will be punished for that. The prophets have no problem with God being wrathful and punishing, but your punishment is not uh, hell. Your punishment is your city's going to be sacked and you're going to be sent off into slavery. It's a this life punishment. And then later, as you get into what they call Deutero-Isaiah, the a second part of the book, he talks about the price has been paid. And the prophet says, the price has been paid. Israel has paid her price. And what is the price? The price is sitting in slavery. And what is the redemption? Getting sent home. Getting sent home. It's a this life. It's a this life saving. But if you read it carefully, the reason the Jewish people get sent home is because a new Persian emperor takes over and the Persian emperor decides to let all the people go home. Nobody died to placate the Persian emperor to satisfy him to send people home. That's just, there's not, that's not part of it. And there isn't a transaction. The Jewish people are a tiny little minority in a giant empire. They, they, there's no gift they could give Emperor Cyrus that would appease him enough to get, them to get him to send them home. He just does. History would tend to show that part of why he did that was he banked incredible amounts of goodwill and it helped the Persian Empire grow and be more stable. So it, there was a self-interest thing to it. There is a point at which cruelty can work against you and the Persians understood this, but either way, that language is there. The people sinned, they were made captive, and they were freed. Why were they freed? Because God chose to make them free. What was the punishment? They suffered their own punishment for their sins. There's no substitute, nobody steps in, and God says over and over and over in the prophets, you know, you have sinned, but if you change, I'll turn away my wrath. If you change, I'll turn away my wrath. It never says, I want to turn away my wrath, but somebody's got to die first. So Bonhoeffer's bringing all this into it, and he's questioning it, but he's getting right at a foundational belief of a lot of Christianity that's going to really rattle people to their core. And it starts raising questions like, if Jesus didn't die to redeem me from an afterlife of hell, what was the point? Why would he die? Well, you got to think of it differently. And I look at Bonhoeffer and I realize here's a guy who literally did die. Even though he didn't believe in a literal hell, he still died. He still made the decision in following Jesus that he would take up his cross and follow him and he would die for that. I think sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit. You know, if we really believe in something, would we be willing to die for it? Do, does there have to be a reward after death? Is that the only reason we die for something? You know, when, when somebody says, would you die for me? You know, does it have to be something after death or does it have to just be, you know, helping somebody who's here today, right? Um, and so this, is, so this is what he's talking about. I will challenge you to think about that. Run that thought experiment in your head. What if Jesus' understanding of redemption, of coming to save the world, is not about rescuing us from a hellfire that we're all destined to? What if it is about rescuing the world today, 
making the world better today, getting us out of the things that bind us and oppress us today in this world, maybe tomorrow, but still in this life. You know, am I okay with that? Am I okay with that? Uh, as he says, um, Israel is delivered out of Egypt so that it may live before God as God's people on earth. That is what they are redeemed for, to live as God's people on earth. Am I going to be okay with just living as God's people on earth? Or do I have to, you know, and, and to ask the question one step further, am I falling into idolatry when I insist that I'm only going to follow God to the extent that I get something in return? Am I slipping into paganism? Instead of worshiping a pagan idol, am I making God into a pagan idol? You know, am I trying to get the transaction back in there? I'll give God worship today, he gives me heaven tomorrow. I'll give up whatever vice, wealth, sensuality, pride, I'll get heaven tomorrow. I will, you know, give God praise. Uh, is, is, are we slipping into paganism? When we talk about it in, the, in redemption, in those terms, about an afterlife, are we slipping into making God an idol? Um, or do we do that even in this life? You know, I think about the prosperity gospel, which I pick on relentlessly. Yeah, and I'm not going to stop. Uh, the prosperity gospel, which I think does exactly that. I worship God, God gives me blessings. I give God praise, God gives me a promotion. I give, I give God prayer, I get uh, growth in my income, right? That's Joel Osteen, right? It's very transactional. Praise is rewarded with benefits. And so I almost, I see this and I'm like, man, the only difference between the God of Joel Osteen and Baal is what sacrifice they want. You know, the, the God of Joel Osteen wants your praises. He wants your, uh, you know, he, he wants your financial decisions. Uh, he wants your trust. In return, you get stuff. Bonhoeffer is willing to go to his grave. Not sure he's going to get much of anything out of it. Now, he doesn't, it is interesting, he does say, Sheol and Hades, and Hades is often the word, in the New Testament that's used for, uh, it's the Greek word for hell. Now again, in the Greek world, there's good and bad parts of hell. There was the good part for, you know, the Elysian fields, or you could end up in Tartarus. He doesn't say that there's no resurrection. Bonhoeffer never denies that there's a resurrection. Uh, and Jesus himself doesn't deny a resurrection. He says it over and over and over. But the resurrection isn't to get us out of a hellfire. It's just to wake us up again. And when I first started debating that, that was really disconcerting until it became very not disconcerting and I really liked it. I don't always preach it on Sundays, you know, the idea that we just sit and sleep until we're raised again. But it is what, it is what Jesus taught. It is what uh, Paul taught. Uh, it's even in Revelation. You know, God resurrects all these people. So uh, it's an interesting to think that maybe our sense of redemption, that, that this word, that it, maybe we're imposing 
a construct on there that we shouldn't be imposing and that we need to rethink it. And maybe if we rethought it, we would understand Jesus better and we'd understand God's purpose for us better. All right, I'll leave you with that. We've deconstructed redemption. We've deconstructed the afterlife. We've deconstructed a lot of atonement. Bonhoeffer's really deconstructing pretty hard here. Uh, next week, we'll get into his reconstruction, right? Because there we're going to ask the question, okay, if redemption isn't about, if it isn't about, I'm going to go to hell, but thank God now I'm, you know, pulling me out of hell, what is it? He will start to make some proposals. He will throw out some ideas. It's, I know it's an easy way to criticize philosophers. I do it myself all the time. It's easy to tear down. It's hard to build up. Right? That was uh, Noam Chomsky's complaint about Foucault. You know, no one will ever accuse Noam Chomsky of being a conservative, right? But when he met Michel Foucault, who deconstructs stuff all over the time, Chomsky walked away and said, this is a guy who doesn't believe in anything. And Chomsky felt like Foucault was kind of, he'd only done half the project, right? It's not enough to just say, these are the systems that oppress us. The question, the better question you needed to also ask is, what would a system be that doesn't oppress? And Foucault never, 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 never answers that. Uh, and um, so Bonhoeffer is not Foucault. Bonhoeffer will deconstruct and he will begin to reconstruct. So next week we'll work more on the positive side, get our imaginations going a little bit more. I hope this has been helpful, eye-opening. And I hope that uh, if you got any questions, as always, give me a message. Uh, let me know. I'll be happy to chat. I'll be happy to buy a cup of coffee if you want to chat more. So uh, otherwise, have a great week and uh, God bless.